HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, I have a great show today. In the studio with me is the excellent, the wonderful, and the amazing journalist Tom Philpott, who joined me last week, as those of you would remember, uh, to talk about GM crops. Today we're going to be joined on the phone uh, by Dr. Charles Benbrook, who has uh, published about two years ago, I think, uh, published a sort of seminal study uh, of following 15 years worth of genetically modified organisms and came up with some conclusions that were, uh, shall we say, problematic, to say the least, for um, the likes of Monsanto, Syngenta, DuPont, and Dow. Um, so um, I'm going to give a quick bio of my guests before we jump in. Just for those of you who don't remember, um, for five years, Tom Philpott has served as a columnist, food editor, and senior food writer for the online Online environmental site Grist. He's now at um, Mother Jones, and he is a co-founder of Maverick Farms, a center for sustainable food education in Valley Crucis, North Carolina. I said that correctly, didn't That's I? That's right. Okay, very good. Um, and uh, you used to write on um, the stock market. I thought it was very interesting, and I, I want to talk about that sometime bef- again with you um, about sort of commodity trading. Sure. Anyway, and Dr. Ben Brook, otherwise known as Chuck. Um, is a research professor at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University. He is the program leader of Measure to Manage Farm and Food Diagnostics for Sustainability and Health. His career has focused on developing science-based systems for evaluating the public health, environmental, and economic impacts of changes in agricultural systems, biotech, and policy. He has worked extensively on pesticide use and risk assessment and the development of biointensive integrated pest management. He played an important role in the evolution of the 1996 Food Quality Protection Act and has produced multiple reports on agricultural biotechnology. Welcome back to the program, Chuck. Thanks a lot for joining us today. I'm really excited about having you two uh, wonks wonk out for (laughs) the benefit of a junior wonk like me. (laughs) Chuck, are you there? Yes, I am. Very good, sir. So, um, gentlemen, 
Let us start with a little discussion of Chuck's uh, 2012 study that I referenced earlier in my intro that was not particularly favorable to GMO tech. Can you um, give us a sense of what that study, uh, how it was set up, and what you concluded? Sure. Um, um, I was aware, as as most of us following the introduction of uh, uh, Roundup Ready herbicide-tolerant crops, of... uh, many claims that this technology was reducing pesticide use, but as I tracked uh, official USDA data on the uh, average pounds of herbicides uh, applied, um, it it didn't strike me that 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 was actually uh, being borne out, in fact. So um, I I came out with my first report in 2004 um, assessing the difference in per acre total herbicide applications on corn, soybean, and cotton planted to genetically engineered varieties with the Roundup Ready gene versus uh, corn, soybeans, and cotton uh, varieties that were conventional and and hence on which weeds were controlled the good old-fashioned way with uh, conventional herbicides. The, um, uh, as the, uh, you know, as my, my 2012 study showed for the first few years, about three years, there was a modest decline um, in, in both herbicide use and insecticide use as a result of the planting of GE crops. But beginning in year four, which which would have been uh, the year 2000, uh, uh, the uh, increases really started to pick up and, and have um, uh, continued to rise at a faster rate each year uh, over the last uh, now um, uh, really uh, uh, 12 years or so. Um, for example, in 1995, the year before Roundup Ready soybeans were introduced, um, the uh, uh, average uh, soybean acre in the United States was treated with 1.1 pounds of, uh, of herbicides. Uh, the last time the USDA surveyed soybean pesticide use was 2012, uh, just two years ago. And in that year, the average use was 1.72 pounds. So since uh, the introduction of GE crop technology, the average per acre use of herbicides has gone up uh, over six-tenths of a pound and over 60%. uh, There's there's simply no serious debate among weed scientists about what has driven this. And it's the uh, spread of resistant weeds and the fact that... uh, uh, herbicide tolerant technology is uh, 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 linked to the application of uh, of a glyphosate herbicide, which is applied at a relatively high dose compared to many other herbicides. So yeah, but isn't glyphosate? No, yeah, Tom has a question too. Tom, go ahead. Um, Chuck, uh, I've I've, ju- I've just tried to uh, you know uh, share with people what the official USDA data says and, right. and let people sort it out. Right. So, Chuck, a uh, quick question for you. Um, I don't know if you saw Dan Charles's post a few weeks ago. Yeah, take, gonna... taking issue with me um, over something that I cited from Food and Water Watch. But what what Charles was saying was that since the rise of GE crops, most of the expansion in herbicide use has been from the expansion of corn and soy, basically based on ethanol. As um, corn plantings have uh, have gotten bigger in the Midwest, but you're just saying right there that average uh, per acre on GE crops has risen by 60%. Uh, what's going on there? Uh, well, that, that, it's a good, 
good question, and, and uh, um, you know, Dan got some things right and, and other things uh, not right. Um, it is true that the total acres planted to corn, uh, you know, have gone up by over 10 million acres in the GE era. Uh, and it's also true, of course, that um, many more farmers are relying largely or exclusively on glyphosate um, uh, and, and less so on, on other herbicides. So you would expect the total volume of glyphosate to go up. But uh, the, 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 the most important measure to focus on, if you, if you want to answer the question, have, have uh, herbicide-tolerant GE crops reduced the need to apply herbicides measured by pounds of active ingredient per acre, you have to focus on the averages per acre, and within, when you use that metric, you see, uh, uh, you know, this 60% increase in soybeans, which is about what it is in, in cotton. The increase is less significant in corn, although it's starting to step up now. So uh, Dan is correct that the expansion of corn and soybean acres and the switch to Roundup Ready technology has driven the overall increase in glyphosate use, but what I focused on and what is the legitimate um, measure to focus on is the uh, per acre, average per acre use. But isn't glyphosate supposedly less toxic to the environment? I mean, there was an article in Forbes by John Entine saying that um, using uh, glyphosate, even if you use more, it's less persistent in the environment and less toxic to animals. So, I mean, wasn't that sort of come out as a wash? Like, why is it so bad to, um, well, I mean, aside from breeding know, uh, resistance? <laughs> why don't you let Tom weigh in on this? I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll say two things, and I'm what. Chuck to, to weigh in as well, but um, I would say one thing is that um, well, first of all, when Chuck can cor correct me if I'm wrong, but when most toxicity studies look at uh, and Roundup, they're looking at the active ingredient glyphosate. Right. But ra but Roundup is glyphosate plus other additives that help it penetrate the plant wall so that it can act as an herbicide. And these these additives um, may not. I think there's a lot of ambiguity and conflicting evidence. But these these additives may not be as benign as someone like John Enton, who's never met a chemical that he didn't, didn't want to take a bath in, um, <laughs> um, says. The second thing, and I think uh, Chuck will back me up on this completely, um, is that well, that the the idea that Roundup is um, is is less toxic and therefore better is um, becoming less and less relevant as it loses effectiveness yeah, and farmers turn sense. towards, um, you know, what everyone acknowledges are harsher chemicals like 2,4-D, dicamba, um, um, atrazine. Um, atrazine has been uh, on the rise in recent years and is still very widely used in corn. Uh, despite the, the rise of Roundup Ready, and atrazine is an awful herbicide. Why? I was curious why. You know, when I when I picked up those two articles, the one from Entine and the one from uh, Dan Charles on NPR, um, neither of those authors mentioned the increased use of products like 2,4-D and Entrazine or whatever the other and the other more lethal herbicides that are making such a comeback. Do you, Chuck, in your studies, uh, in your follow up to that study that you did? Um, have you seen or are you able to quantify like the increased use of, of herbicides being specifically glyphosate or do you see a tremendous increase in these other um, herbicides as well as the glyphosate? 
Okay, there's three things on the table. Let, let me start <laughs> by making a really important point. Please. Um, the, the problem with rapidly increasing herbicide use has been building since 2001, the year the first glyphosate-resistant weed was documented in a, in a uh, Delaware soybean field. Uh-huh. The, the increase in the last three years has dwarfed the increase in the previous decade. And the uh-huh. increase next year may dwarf the increase over the last four or five years. So this, if you, if you only uh, look at this problem based on the most recent USDA data, which for corn is 2010, cotton is 2010, and soybeans 2012, you, you miss uh, the, the dramatic acceleration in uh, additional herbicide use that has been happening in the last uh, two or three uh, years. And, and you also miss this sense of urgency, if not panic, uh, in uh, the presentations made by wheat scientists, especially those coming from southeast where this problem has been so severe mm-hmm. so we we really the, the reason dan charles is, isn't aware of a lot of this is he probably looked at the latest data available from the usda and missed the the uh all of the information that that has come out in the last two or three years characterizing this dramatic increase in the last three years hmm. the second uh, the second key point is, is that um Farmers now that have two or three glyphosate-resistant weeds in their fields are having to uh, resort to almost any herbicide that still works on those weeds. I mean, they're they're kind of scraping the bottle of the barrel or the bottom of the toolbox. And we now see official recommendations from university weed scientists in Tennessee and Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana to spray glyphosate two or three times, to spray two long-term residual grass herbicides like atrazine or metolachlor at least twice, to spray 2,4-D at least once, dicamba possibly once, and even paraquat once, plus two other post-herbicides. So if you look at what they're saying, they're up now to... uh, at least five and as many as seven active ingredients per acre. And when you add up all the pounds, they're up in the, the four to, to six pound range for, for total applications. And th- this is the, the reality. So things have really changed uh, 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 rapidly. And just returning for a minute to glyphosate and, and the risk associated with it. In general, the toxicological profile and the environmental profile of glyphosate is very good relative to other registered herbicides. Tom is right. Some of the uh, adjuvants and surfactants uh, clearly increase the toxicity of glyphosate. And actually, Monsanto and the industry has gone away from some of the more toxic ones in their formulations that are being sold today. But the, the problem with glyphosate is that there's so much of it used now so many different environments that every American is being exposed to glyphosate multiple times per year, if not on nearly a daily basis. It's starting to show up in all of our 
urine and all of our blood. It's in the rain everywhere. People are breathing it. And, and at some point, uh, even with a relatively benign chemical like glyphosate, toxicological concerns are going to arise. And, and this concern from the exposure side, you know, which is definitely ballooning, is, is um, made worse by some of the recent studies that have been published that actually uh, suggest that glyphosate may pose some long-term risks that were not apparent in the uh, original toxicological work done. So I think there's a, there, there is a, a, a real um, essential need now for the government, for the industry, to, to take a, a hard and fresh look at both glyphosate exposure levels and risk, because we are, we are um, engaged in a gamble that, that's involving most of the American population if not the rest of the developing world, because they're all planting those GMO crops as fast as they can. Um, Chuck, we have to take a short break for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Dr. Charles Benbrook uh, and uh, the wonderful Tom Philpott, who hasn't had nearly enough to say yet. So. <laughs> stay with us. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, in the studio with me is journalist Tom Philpot, who has written extensively about GMO and GM crops. And uh, on the phone is Dr. Charles Benbrook uh, from Washington State University, I believe. Um, and uh, we're talking GM tech. So, um, Chuck, one of the things that Tom and I both thought were interesting about what you're, you've been doing lately, and which also was referenced in the recent USDA government uh, report on genetically engineered crops is the price of seeds of soybean and corn seeds and uh, just according to this um, to the USDA report the price has grown by 50% in real terms between 2001 and 2010 and GE cotton even faster etc uh, etc et so what is what does all this mean planting BT corn and continues to be more profitable as measured by net returns than planting conventional seeds but I mean, ultimately, if you're spending a lot of money on buying more herbicides, et cetera, I'm not sure where your where your um, you know where your your numbers are going there. Can you talk a little? I know you've been doing a little work on this, so can you talk about that? Well, sure. Um, I found it very curious that the that the ERS uh, used uh, seed costs in 2001 as the baseline in uh, comparing. Uh, the, the cost of GE seeds to conventional because if he'd gone if they'd gone back to 1996 which was really the beginning uh, you would see that um, soybean seed has 
uh, risen by uh, you know close to it's close to doubled. Corn seed has uh, probably gone up uh, three to fourfold, and cottonseed has gone up sixfold or more. Uh, so the <clears throat> the increases in seed prices have been substantial and. There's another factor that most people don't uh, uh, realize, and that is since 1996, over the last 16 years, the rate of seeding per acre has gone up about 50% in all of these crops. So, um, in other words, not only has the price of seed gone up, but farmers are planting far more seeds per acre. So their overall expenditures on seeds have, have gone up uh, you know, very dramatically. Uh, I would say that uh, sometime in the last three or four years, for uh, all of the, the the GE primary GE crops, uh, uh, the economic proposition became uh, a negative one in that the they're they're making less per acre uh, uh, in terms of net returns, it, but what they're getting is the much simpler. Uh, and uh, weed management and insect management systems. So there, you know, there's a there is a a clear trade-off there. But there, there, I don't think that uh, uh, there's much question now that uh, uh, that that GE technology is 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 not uh, saving money compared to conventional varieties. Uh, there's there's many many studies that uh, contradict that now. So in other words, the yield for uh, for these crops is not commensurate with the price of the seeds, if you see what I mean. Like, they're well, not sir, getting that sir, much higher a yield, yeah, the, and they're I paying mean, that much uh, more. As, as Tom has written, uh, none of the GE technologies were designed to increase the inherent yield potential of the crops. They're, they're all about um, trying to make it easier for farmers to mm-hmm. deal with either uh, lepidopteran insects or, or weeds. Right. Tom, you were going to say yeah. One thing that um, that I would just add is that um, that in the um, like I think this year, nineteen uh, two thousand fourteen, we've seen that the 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 price of corn in the marketplace has has come down a little bit for various global reasons, um, and that the cost of production of corn continues climbing upward. Um, Seed prices are higher, uh, rents continue to rise in the Midwest. And we're at the point now where the cost of production, this is kind of remarkable, the cost of production of corn has gone above the market price of corn. And that's the, the first time this has happened since the rise of, the, of you know, uh, government-controlled ethanol mandates starting in 2006 that really kind of pushed corn through the roof. And so now we are seeing um, this happen. And, of course, when that happens, the government makes up the difference. Um, and we have all kinds of programs in place to do that. Um, and that's great for the seed companies and the input suppliers because they will continue selling their their products even when farmers are losing money per acre. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, who knows what's going to happen as the growing season goes on. Maybe there's going to be a drought in the Midwest or a drought in some other growing region and the price of corn spikes again. But uh, it's looking like 2014 is going to be a losing season for farmers. Amazing. And that has an impact on the livestock markets all the way across the board since so many of the livestock sectors rely on corn as a feed. Well, they're happy so to that, have they're happy to have the cheaper corn. They've been punished by high corn in recent years. They have been, but they uh, people will plant less corn. I mean, you know, cuz it'll end up being where they trade off, they'll start shrinking supplies 
our corn reserves were very low. We've had drought. So a lot of crops failed last year, the year before, the year before that. So there, I mean, there's a shrinking supply of beef cattle because of that. And there's a shrinking supply of corn uh, worldwide, I think, for the same reasons. Um, guys, let's talk for a second because we, well, we have as much time as we want, actually. <laughs> I've just made that decision. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Sarah is saying no, no, no. <laughs> Um, we are, uh, we, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, crops that are not, uh, commodity crops, staples like, uh, corn, soy, and, um, cotton. I wanted to talk about, uh, some reasons why, uh, foods have not, I'm the only ones I know of are the papaya, right? And the gold rice, which is supposed to have this like phenomenal yield plus have beta carotene in it. Right. Um, what other, are there any other food crops that are being developed as uh, genetically modified organisms? And if not, why not? Is it for the same reasons as, I mean, well, the, are there reasons the, why? I mean, is it because they're not so successful in the commodities? Um, the only important new GE crop for the average consumer is sweet corn. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, last year, uh, Monsanto introduced a, a new sweet corn technology that expresses two different BT genes and also is uh, herbicide tolerant, uh, Roundup Ready. Uh, that corn, uh, that, those sweet corn varieties have already uh, uh, captured over a third of the market in Canada, although. Uh, adoption in the U.S. last season was was much lower, probably less than 10 percent. It remains to be seen how widely it will be planted uh, in 2014, the the Monsanto varieties. Uh, Apparently, they don't do that well out here in the West, where a lot of the fresh sweet corn and processing sweet corn is is grown. But this is the first uh, uh, fruit and vegetable that's consumed in a largely unprocessed form by people that will deliver a, a quite significant dose of these uh, uh, BT proteins to people. And I've been um, uh, really deeply concerned about the uh, allergenetic potential of this technology and, and, and arguing for the industry to voluntarily label any sweet corn containing the, the um, uh, the engineered uh, proteins uh, in order to give people and their doctors uh, a chance to to recognize whether they are, in fact, having an allergic reaction. Right. Uh, the right. other big uh, technologies that are coming down the line that may or may not get approved are um, there's a, a genetically engineered potato that expresses a lower level of a known carcinogen uh, called acrylamide. Um, that that uh, technology is developed has been developed by Simplot and is uh, uh, you know in the the government review process um, and there, there are certainly several others but the, the fundamental reason why we don't have GE grapes or apples or carrots or lettuce uh, or tomatoes on the market is that those foods are consumed in substantial volumes by people often in in a fresh or near fresh form. That means that people would be exposed to the proteins, and that also means that the companies would have to do long-term safety studies in experimental animals, and um, they have uh, shied away from doing that, um, uh, you know, up up to this point. But uh, I, you know, I I can't imagine, or I certainly hope that the the FDA wouldn't allow any of these uh, major fresh fruits and vegetables to to come on the market with. uh, 
transgenic proteins in them without long-term safety testing. You think? See, I, I have no such... <laughs> I have no such faith in the FDA, Chuck. I'm surprised to even hear you say that. I mean, they seem willing to let us. I mean, the, the, I'd love to have a little chat about GRAS, G-R-A-S, generally regarded as safe, um, because that's a designation that gets thrown around all the time, whether it's nanotech, whether it's genetically modified organisms. I mean, it's like whatever it is, they don't feel like testing it. The FDA just gives them a GRAS rating and it's all good. But just let me, one quick point. It, it's not just up to the FDA. If you, if you ask the apple industry in Washington State, the largest apple industry in the country, if they want to grow the genetically engineered Arctic apple, the resounding answer is no, because they know that the minute Washington apple growers start planting that genetically engineered variety, they're going to lose most of their Pacific Rim markets, regardless of what right. the FDA does. So it, the, the reason that... that GE technology is not moving into other grains. It's not moving into fruits and vegetables. Is because the um, American food industry uh, understands that it will lose, uh, you know, maybe a third of its export market for any right. of these commodities. Uh, the the day they plant uh, genetically engineered varieties. That is true. Although that everybody seems to be have been buying our corn without a whimper, or our soy. Right. I mean. But, People don't eat our corn and soy. It's it's fed to animals or converted to oils. I guess that's right. Yeah, ethanol. that makes sense. Um, well, I guess we have to wrap it up here, uh, guys. Do you want to promote speaking engagements, writings, uh, blogs, whatever you want? Let me just step in and say that um, for people listening in the New York area, I'm doing an event tonight right. at um, – at Marcus Samuelson's place in Harlem. Um, Red Rooster. Red Rooster. Downstairs from Red Rooster is Ginny's Supper Club at 6.30 tonight. Um, we have a panel discussing diversity in the restaurant kitchen. Um, we've got Marcus Samuelson. Um, we've got Gabrielle Hamilton from, uh, Prune. from Prune. We've got Floyd Cordoz, who... Um, was a uh, he's a fantastic chef. He was a um, yeah ta- Tabla. I forget chef. what his new. He was new a founding chef of Tabla and is now running a restaurant down in um, Lower Manhattan. Uh, it's going to be a great discussion. It starts at six thirty. There is um, drinks and food from uh, Red Rooster when we start. Um, we'll have cocktails for a while and then we'll move to the panel discussion. So come and on. You out. can get tickets on Eventbrite. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So thanks, you guys. Uh, thanks. Chuck, thank you very much for joining us today. It was really interesting, very informative and helpful. Um, and uh, I hope the whole GM question has been somewhat elucidated in these two discussions. I could see there's a lot more to go, though. Um, and Tom, thanks so much for joining me in the studio today. It's, it's a real pleasure. It's fantastic to be here at this incredible restaurant. The smells coming into I know, the studio are amazing. I know. And we get to watch somebody eating pizza right in front of us. All right. Thanks to my sponsor, Game 5 Winery. Yeah, Chuck? Cheers. Bye-bye. That's all, folks. We'll see you next week. Sorry about that. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>